Well, you know, it's a great time of year, isn't it? It's a wonderful time of the year. It's a great thing that the Christmas rush has finished and, and all that busyness is out of the way and the Boxing Day test has started. It's a good thing. And that means that it's a few weeks of looking forward to you know, summer holidays and a chance to sit back and relax a bit and take stock and think about the year ahead. It's at this time of year, isn't it, that people make uh, resolutions, New Year's resolutions, things like, oh, this is the year I'm going to you know, quit smoking, or this is the year I'm going to eat healthily, you know, this is the year I'm going to lose weight, this is the year. Now, I've thought about it and thought, I'm really not one for New Year's resolutions, but I've realised I too make plans and have hopes and dreams and get excited about looking forward to 2010. I wonder what your resolutions and your plans, your hopes, what you're looking forward to for the new year. Maybe you've decided this is the year, it's time to get fit. It's time to go to the gym and and get some exercise. Maybe you're thinking this is the year we need to work on the veggie garden. It's been old and overgrown, It's, it's not really doing anything. We need to work on the veggie garden and fix it up this year. Maybe you've decided you've been missing out on the kids' sport for too long and this is the year you can go along and see them the playing field. Or maybe you've decided, look, this is the year, the house is getting a bit too run down, it's getting a bit too worn out, I need to do something about this, it's time for the renovations. It's time to rip out that old kitchen and put in a new one. Well, we have plans as a family too. Uh, For us, uh, we've got a car that's really quite large and it's just too large for what we need. So when we get back to Sydney, we want to sell our larger car and get a smaller car because that'll save money at the petrol pump. Not bad to have plans, isn't it? It's a good thing to plan and think about and look forward to the year ahead. But it was great when I first came to Dubbo to see the Christmas lights getting prepared and to see the big words on top of the roof. And they said, Jesus is king. Jesus is king. Jesus is king. Now, if those are just to be something more than just words on our roof, sooner or later we need to ask ourselves, how does following Jesus affect our plans for the year ahead? What does Jesus expect of his followers and how is that going to affect our lives in 2010? It's good to look at the passage, but before I start, I thought it'd be good to get a big idea of the big picture of the story so far in the book of Luke. You see, the first eight chapters of the book of Luke are all about the big question, who is Jesus? Who is this man? What has he come to do? And then in chapter 9, there's this key turning point. And Jesus speaks to Peter and he says, Peter, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, the Christ of God. You see, Peter rightly recognises that Jesus is the, the Christ, the King, the Messiah, the one who is in charge. And from that point on, Jesus starts teaching about what it means to follow him. Uh, just before these verses here, Jesus sets his face towards Jerusalem. He starts out on a journey that he knows will end in his suffering and his death, and then his resurrection three days later. That's the big journey we're on in this part of the book of Luke. And this journey, in some ways, it finishes with the story of Zacchaeus just before Jesus gets into Jerusalem. And in the story of Zacchaeus, Jesus says, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. And Jesus is talking about himself. He's saying, I have come to seek and save the lost. But you see that word lost there, It doesn't mean uh, the person who's taken the wrong turn. It doesn't mean the person needs to buy a better GPS so they can sort of find out where they are. No, the word's much more serious than that. 
That word lost means those who are doomed to destruction, those who cannot save themselves. You see, Jesus came to seek and save the lost by losing his own life, by dying on a cross, to pay the penalty that our sins deserve so that we could be right with God, so that our sins could be forgiven and we could have eternal life. And that is wonderful news, isn't it? That is awesome news. That is fantastic news and that is the big picture of the book of Luke. But as we remember this big picture, we see that Jesus meets three men in this story, doesn't he? And the first man comes up to him. In verse 57 it says, As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Now that man seems pretty enthusiastic, doesn't he? He seems pretty keen. He seems to want to follow Jesus no matter what. And I cannot imagine a more enthusiastic, a more keen you know, response to Jesus. He just says, I'll go wherever you go, Jesus. And Jesus is pretty blunt, isn't he? In verse 58, Jesus replied, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. I wonder, if you were that man there and you just come up to Jesus and pledged your undying allegiance to him, how you would feel if he said that to you? It's pretty clear, isn't it, that our leaders in this world often promise earthly rewards, don't they? For example, when I used to have a job and I used to work, my boss would say to me, look, you know, you work hard this year and you'll get a bonus. We'll give you some extra money because you do a good job. Or our politicians, they often promise things too, don't they? They say, I know it's been hard for the last few years, but you vote for me. Follow me one more time and I'll fix everything up. It'll all be okay. But by contrast, Jesus makes no promise of any earthly reward or any earthly security, does he? Jesus seems to be saying to this man, look, have you figured this out? Have you thought this through? Have you really thought about what it means to follow me? There's no earthly reward and no earthly security for those who follow Jesus. Now, Jesus is not saying here, look, you've got to sell the house. You've got to sell the car. You've got to sell the computer. He does not say that at all. But it's very clear. There's no house, no holidays, no superannuation package for Jesus, is there? He's heading to a cross to suffer and die. And as I've thought about it, by, by comparison, my own life is actually pretty selfish a fair bit of the time. I've found myself praying over the last few weeks things like this. I've been looking at interest rates going up and up and up, and I'm thinking, God, it'd be really good if you could help by you know, keeping interest rates on hold just a bit, little bit longer, please. Because you know, that's making it hard for the family finances. Can you please help us out by just... you know? not letting interest rates go up too much. Or I found myself praying things like, gee God, you know, we want to sell the car when we get back to Sydney. God, could you please help us out by you know, providing a good price for that car? That would be really helpful, God. You see, so often my prayers are about my comfort and my security and things going well for me. In this passage, Jesus makes it clear that he expects us to follow a rejected and a suffering leader. Are our hopes and are our dreams, are our plans for 2010 all about our comfort and our security and things going well for us? Do our plans and our prayers reflect the leader we follow? Uh, Jesus comes up to a second man, doesn't he, in verse 59, and he said to another man, follow me. But the man replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. 
See, the man is called, isn't he? Jesus does call this man to follow him. It's clear that Jesus wants followers, doesn't he? He does want people to follow him. It's not enough just to wander around and be part of the crowd and hang around Jesus for a few days and then to leave a little while later. Jesus wants people who are keen and focused on following him. And this man, he doesn't say no to Jesus, does he? He doesn't say, no, no way, not at all. He says, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Now this phrase, bury my father, I think is a little complicated. So it's worth our while to spend a little time thinking about what's going on here. What's very clear in this verses is that the man's family is very important to him, isn't it? In some ways, this reminds me of my wife's family. Uh, my wife is from a country called Taiwan, and all my wife's family still live in Taiwan. And they're really wonderful and really helpful and very wonderful people. I just think they're great. But in some ways, Chinese think a bit differently to the way that most Westerners think. There was an advertisement on TV recently about retirement. And it said, oh, look, you know, this is the way we want to spend our retirement. And it had this couple, you know, putting on their motorcycle helmets and riding off into the sunset and spending their kids' inheritance travelling around Australia. And that was seen as the best way you could spend your retirement. Now, if you are Chinese, that would be a weird way to spend your retirement because Chinese know that about the time that you retire is about the time when the grandchildren come on the scene. So as a Chinese grandparent, the best thing that you can do is move close to your children and spend time looking after the grandkids because grandchildren are a wonderful blessing. You see, for Chinese families, the bonds of extended family are often much closer in general than they are for Westerners like you and I. But that cuts both ways. You see, for Chinese oftentimes, uh, the expectation is that the children will look after their parents in their old age. As the grandparents get older and older, the kids are expected to look after them. For Chinese, nursing homes are not acceptable. They are not a good idea because that would mean that you're letting your parents go and stay by themselves in the last years of their life. And from what I understand, Middle Eastern culture, the sort of world that Jesus was living in, was in some ways much more like Chinese culture than it is like our world here today. And so when this man says, bury my father, what he's saying is not my father has just died today and I need to bury him, I've got to go to the funeral. It's much more likely he's saying, my father is getting old and I need to look after him and care for him in his old age because that's just what everybody else does, so that's what I need to do too. Jesus' response is pretty blunt, isn't it? In verse 60, he says, you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. You see, Jesus is emphasizing that God's kingdom and proclaiming that good news is very important, isn't it? It's vital. It's so important that we go out and tell other people the gospel. We tell other people the good news about Jesus. And Jesus also says in verse 60, he says, let the dead bury their own dead. Now, what that phrase cannot mean is that you need to let the physically dead go and bury the physically dead. The phrase cannot mean that, can it? Because the physically dead can't do anything because they're dead. What the phrase must mean is that the spiritually dead can bury the physically dead. What Jesus is saying here is if you understood the gospel, you wouldn't put it off. If you understood the good news about Jesus, you wouldn't delay. If you understood the wonder of forgiveness and eternal life, you would not say, but first I need to do something else and I'll come back to this later. 
you'd get involved in it here and now. The big question for us from these verses, is: are we conforming to the society around us or are we planning and looking forward to proclaiming the gospel in this place in 2010? How could that work out for you? Perhaps you could start praying that this year you could invite a neighbour to an invitation Sunday so they could hear the good news about Jesus. Perhaps, you know, if you struggle to tell other people about Jesus, you could get some training in the year ahead on how to do that better. Perhaps if you've got an elderly parent, you could give them a book and share that book with them. That would share with them the good news about who Jesus is and what he came to do. Clearly, Jesus expects us to proclaim the gospel. How are you planning on doing that this year? Uh, Jesus comes up um, to a third man. In verse 61, it says, Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. The man volunteers once again, doesn't he? He seems keen, he seems enthusiastic, but first he must do something else. Now this phrase, say goodbye here, I think is a, a little, little confusing. Apparently, uh, in Middle Eastern culture, it wouldn't be normal for him to just to say, all right, I'm going to say goodbye, I'll just make a quick detour, wave goodbye to my parents, give them a kiss on the cheek, and then head off on a journey. It's much more likely this man is going to go back and ask his parents for permission to leave. Apparently in Middle Eastern culture, even today, a 40-year-old man who has moved out of home and is living life pretty much under his own control will go back and ask his father if it's okay for him to change jobs. Now, in effect, he's normally running his life his own way, but he shows respect and honour and looks up to his father by asking his permission before he goes and makes a big change. And in the same way, it's most likely this man is saying, yeah, you're important, Jesus, but I need to go and ask permission for my family because they are important too. This man here is emphasising the importance of his father. And Jesus responds to him, doesn't he? And in verse 62, Jesus replied, no one who puts his hand to the plough and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. You see, Jesus' reply here, emphasises the need for concentration on the task at hand, doesn't it? Apparently in Jesus' day, when they were ploughing the fields, they had these ploughs that just had one single blade. And apparently the ground around them that they were ploughing was quite rocky. So what you needed to do, you wanted to concentrate, and you had to concentrate on ploughing, because if you didn't, you know, the plough blade would hit a rock, and that would be bad because you'd either break the plough, or you'd end up you know, sending the plough off course, and it would make this wavy furrow down the field, which would just ruin everything. So Jesus is saying you need to focus, you need to concentrate on what you're doing if you're going to follow me. Double-minded workers are not useful. You can only usefully follow one leader at a time. Jesus is saying here that he is more important than the man's father. And that is a really big and strong and powerful statement to this man because in Middle Eastern culture... The man's father is terribly, terribly important and you needed to look up and respect and honour them. But for us as Westerners, I think sometimes our focus is a bit different, isn't it? For example, I remember seeing an advertisement on TV many years ago and it was about this man who had a great, had a great life. He was in his early 30s, he was playing cricket on the beach, he was having fun with his family. It was all going well for him. And the words at the end of the advertisement were so powerful, they said... 
before the most important person in the world, you. You see, for Westerners like you and I, what is so often most important is me enjoying myself, living my life to the full, reaching my goals. That's what life is all about. But Jesus is saying in this passage that the most important person in the world is not your father. The most important person in the world is not you. The most important person in the world is Jesus. And we need to focus and concentrate on following him. As I've thought about this in my own life, this has started to make me feel a bit uncomfortable. For example, a minister, my minister back at uh, Dremoyne Presbyterian Church, where I go to church, came up and spoke to me recently and he said, it'd be great for you to be involved on the Committee of Management. Now, at Dremoyne Presbyterian Church, we have a great Committee of Management. They do wonderful stuff. And apparently you have a Committee of Management here at Dubbo Presbyterian Church as well. In case you don't know, the Committee of Management does lots of really useful stuff around the place, uh, like uh, paying the electricity bills, making sure the building is you know, insured, looking after the budgets, lots of really useful stuff. It's really important that it happens. And I've always thought, gee, it's great that at Dremoyne we have a really good Committee of Management, but I've always thought that me getting involved in a Committee of Management would be about as exciting as watching paint dry. You know, I am really excited about spending time studying the Bible and talking with you about what it means. I'm really excited about getting involved in kids' ministry and telling little boys about girls, about Jesus, because that is awesome. But I cannot imagine anything more dull than getting involved in the Committee of Management. But my minister is wise in his recommendation. He's a smart man because he knows that I'm training to be a Presbyterian pastor. So in a few years, I will have left Dremoyne Presbyterian Church and I could be running my own church and I could be the chairman of the Committee of Management. So it's a very good idea that I know what's going on. My minister's advice is good for the gospel, isn't it? It's really good advice. But you see, so often my plans are about my enjoyment, me having a good time, things working out well for me. The big question from this passage is, what are we looking forward to in 2010? Jesus is making it very clear that he expects us to know he is the most important person in the world and he expects us to focus and concentrate on following him every day. What are your plans about? What are you looking forward to in 2010? Are you getting excited about a new fitness program when you lose some weight? Are you looking forward to a cooking class where you can enjoy lots of yummy food? Are you looking forward to a newer car that will just drive better than the old one used to? If you got to share your resolutions, your hopes, your dreams, what you're looking forward to in 2010, if you got to share them with Jesus, what do you think he would say? Are your plans and hopes and dreams just about the garden and the house? Or are you looking forward to following Jesus and telling other people about him in 2010? What do we say in conclusion? Well, I think it's really important, isn't it, to remember the big picture of the Gospel of Luke. The fact that Jesus came to seek and save the lost and to rescue us and save us and make us right with God because we cannot do that by ourselves. That is awesome news. That is wonderful news. And we need to keep remembering that. Jesus provides suffering for us, salvation for us by his suffering and death. But at the same time, we need to remember the following. You see, my name is Andrew Woodyatt. 
And if you invite me around to your house, then you can't say, look, Andrew, come in and Woodjat, stay out. That, that doesn't work, does it? You can't sort of cut me off in the middle and say, right, this is the Andrew bit, you come in, and the Woodjat bit, you know, you stay outside. That doesn't work, does it? Because I'm all Andrew and I'm all Woodjat, and you can't have one without the other. In the same way, we refer to Jesus as Jesus, the Christ. And the name Jesus means God saves. And the name Christ means that he is king. And you can't have one without the other. You see, Jesus is all saviour. He's all Lord. He's all rescuer and he's all ruler. He's all redeemer and he's all king. And you cannot have one without the other. And Jesus calls on us to follow him day by day. As Christians, we know the most important person in the world is Jesus. Are you planning to follow Jesus in 2010 the way he expects you to? Let's pray and ask God to help us to live our lives according to his word. Our great and mighty God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it reminds us that you save us and you rescue us. And you declare us right with yourself because of the blood of Jesus, because he has died to forgive us so we can be right with you. But dear God, we confess so often uh, that we don't um, give thanks to you by following Jesus every day in our lives. So often our plans and our hopes and our desires are about our comfort and our security. So often we seem to delay telling other people about you. So often our lives are about us living our life to the full, about enjoying ourselves, and not really about treating you as the most important king. Dear God, please help us to change. Please help us to remember your word. And please help us to live lives that honour and praise and thank you with everything that we do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.